Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers, Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about how a ransomware attack is likely to cost a Danish company $95 million, how some threat researchers have found a way to steal data from encrypted PDFs, the advent of disinformation as a service, and how Google has released thousands of deepfake videos in order to make them easier to detect. But first, law enforcement in Germany has staged a dramatic raid on a former NATO underground bunker, which was allegedly home to a bulletproof hosting service. So first of all, we should probably explain what bulletproof hosting is. And while the name sounds like it's super secure hosting, it's actually something quite different, more like a catch-all term for hosting providers who have a very lax approach to the kind of content that it lets its customers host on their servers. In some cases, they're based in countries that don't have much in the way of regulations on what you can publish online. Anyway, back to this former NATO bunker. It's believed to have been purchased in 2013 by a Dutch national with ties to organised crime. Dubbed the Cyber Bunker by its new owners, its description is like something from a movie. Being situated on 3.2 acres, this 5,000 square metre building had five underground floors and was surrounded by barbed wire and video surveillance cameras. Now, seven people were arrested during the raids and follow-up searches, and 13 people in total are under investigation. So the authorities in Germany have said that they're suspected of, number one, membership of criminal organisation, as well as being accessory to multiple offences such as the distribution of drugs, counterfeit money, forged documents and child pornography. To give some idea of the scale of what the police say was underway at this facility, It was believed to have played host to at least three different drug marketplaces, namely Cannabis Road, the Wall Street Market and Orange Chemicals. And it's also been linked to a 2016 botnet attack on German telecoms firm Deutsche Telekom, which knocked out around one million of its customers' routers. So obviously this investigation is still ongoing, but what's happened to date is a timely reminder that nobody's beyond the reach of the law, even those people holed up in ex-military bunkers. So let's move on to ransomware. It was something we were discussing last week after an attack caused havoc for patients at a clinic in Wyoming. That was showing the human cost a cyber attack like this can exert. But there were two stories in the news this week, which underlined just how high the financial costs of ransomware can be. Yes, yeah, so a hearing aid manufacturer called Demand, which is apparently uh, one of the largest manufacturers of hearing aids in the whole world, came out this week to reveal the financial impact um, that it felt following a cyber attack that hit its network at the start of September. Now, Demand didn't explicitly say this was a ransomware attack, and nor has it revealed what kind of malware was used against it, or indeed if it actually paid any ransom. However, the level of disruption caused by the attack, the amount of time it's taken the company to recover from it, and um, they all strongly indicate that it was a ransomware attack, as generally they're the only types of cyber attacks we see really that cause this level of disruption for companies. Um, so what um, kind of disruption did the company say they experienced because of the attack? Yes, yeah, so on the 3rd of September, they released a statement on their website saying that they were shutting down their entire internal IT infrastructure following what they just described at the time as a critical incident. 
And the company didn't go into any further details at the time about the incident, but all of its infrastructure seems to have been severely impacted by it. ZDNet reported that uh, this included its production and distribution facilities in Poland, its production and service sites in Mexico, its sites in France and in Denmark, as well as, in, as its entire um, network in the Asia-Pacific. So literally it was a global outage of all its IT from what we can tell. And it's a month now since the announcement of this incident and demand is still recovering with the company saying that it expects it will be at least another two weeks before it's recovered in full. And obviously giving that level of disruption, it's not surprising that this attack is set to have a severe impact on the company's bottom line with the company saying that it expects the total cost of this attack uh, to be $95 million dollars. Now, obviously, this is a really significant amount of money, um, and it's definitely one of the most significant losses caused by a cyber attack uh, that we've seen ever, really. Uh, the only attacks really where we've seen damage estimates higher than that was probably in the wake of uh, the Petra Not Petra attacks, where losses to companies like FedEx and Maersk were estimated at around the $300 million mark. But, I mean, most cyber attacks do not cost near that amount of money. Um, and it's not even the cleanup of the IT infrastructure that's causing most of these costs for the company either. It's kind of the knock-on effects on the company system, of the company systems being out of commission for such a long time. Demand says that the cost of recovering and rebuilding its IT infrastructure is, you know, only $7.3 million, um, which is obviously a lot of money in itself, but it is less than 10% of its grand total of estimated losses. Most of the costs are associated with lost sales and with it not being able to fulfill existing orders and the company also did say that this incident has affected its kind of future growth plans and that it does expect that it will have a long-term effect on it um, into the future. Wow and um, there was an update this week on one of the ransomware attacks we were talking about uh, before the attack on the city of Baltimore wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. So this attack occurred, I think, in around May. So I guess we're talking about the demand attack still having an impact a month later, but this is really still impacting the city several months later. Um, but Baltimore was kind of hit at the time when there seemed to be a major trend for cities and municipalities to get hit by ransomware attacks. And unfortunately for the cities in question, several of those attacks did cause severe disruption and really expose the fact that their IT systems were perhaps ill-prepared for such an event. And I suppose recently, to add to Baltimore's woes, it has emerged this week that uh, the city's recovery has been severely hampered due to a lack of backups because apparently there was no IT policy in place to ensure that all the city's machines were centrally backed up. Uh, So this has meant that some of the files that were lost in the attack in May on the city's infrastructure are likely to have been lost permanently. Um, and this detail came out in a city council meeting last week when the city auditor revealed that the, the city's IT department was unable to document if it was reaching certain goals, such as modernizing the mainframe or making data more accessible to the city residents, partly because uh, the necessary information had been stored on an employee's hard drive, which was encrypted during the attack and which had not been backed up anywhere else. Um, so Baltimore actually refused to pay the ransom when it was hit, when the ransomware, when it hit its network. Um, and at the time, the attackers were looking for a ransom of approximately $100,000, which is not an insignificant amount of money either. But to date, the recovery from this attack is estimated to have cost Baltimore around $18 million, 
with about 10 million of that spent on recovering from the attack and the other 8 million thought to be caused by lost revenue. So it really just shows the importance of being prepared for ransomware attacks and of backing up all your data. Okay. Now, um, let's turn to you, Candid, because uh, you wanted to talk this week about how researchers in Germany have found a way to extract data from encrypted PDF documents. Uh, so just how do they manage to break the encryption exactly? Yeah, it's an interesting case as they actually didn't really break the encryption. But let's start with um, kind of the encrypted PDF per se. So in order to guarantee confidentiality, PDF documents can be encrypted. And there are a few different schemas available. Usually it's either based on a shared password or through certificates. And the researchers tried to find a way to extract the content of such an encrypted document and then send it back to the attacker. And they then tested their methods against 27 different PDF viewers. And of course they found a few issues uh, in them. And they then grouped all the issues together under the name PDFX as as we all know, I guess, um, every attack needs to have a fancy name nowadays. But the scenario is that you actually need an active attacker, which means the attacker can modify the encrypted document and then pass it on to the final recipient. So, for example, this could happen in a kind of a man-in-the-middle attack scenario. But it does not work in a pure passive approach where the attacker can only sniff the document on the network. So that's the good news. But the clue behind the attack is that the PDF specification allows the document to contain mixed content, so encrypted and unencrypted parts. And therefore, an attacker can actually modify some parts of the document even without knowing the password, as there is no integrity check over the whole document done. Okay, so how exactly does the, the attack work then? Yeah, so in the first method, the attacker will add a small kind of an auto-submit form element or a JavaScript to the document in the unencrypted part, and then just sends on the modified document to the recipient. As soon as the recipient opens the document, and well, of course, with the correct password as he knows it, then the script will start collecting all data, including the previously encrypted parts. All of this will be added to the web form and then automatically submitted back to the attacker. So hence, the burden of decryption is placed on the original recipients. There is no brute force attack on the password or no other crypto attacks happening here. Um, if web forms are not supported by the PDF viewer application, then the attacker could also attack, attach the plain text to a URL and then just call the URI directly. Um, this, however, will in most cases open up a browser with the URL. So that attack is probably not as stealthy as with web forms, but it could still work. A slightly different method that they also found was um, something which does not rely on mixed content. But because the encryption used by uh, the encrypted PDF is usually CBS mode, um, the cipher block uh, chaining mode, it is subjectable to a CBC uh, malleability attack. And hereby an attacker needs to know some plain text, um, which usually is given by some fields, and then work out the correct padding in order to encrypt some new plain text. And with this, they can then generate the URL in an encrypted form, and then will again, like before, use this to send the stream of data back to the attacker. And of course, in their tests, uh, they have shown that all 27 tested PDF viewers were vulnerable to at least one of those scenarios. 
that's a, a kind of a pretty clever attack. But one question now, are encrypted PDF documents widely used? I mean, how common would this scenario be? Yeah, of course, it, it really depends on the document and the content, I guess. Um, most of the PDFs that I see are not encrypted. But for example, there are some enterprise document scanners and printers which can automatically encrypt all generated documents in order to protect the content. And of course, if we think about medical devices, there are also a few which generate encrypted PDF documents for the sake of privacy. So therefore, it's definitely worth checking your setup if you depend somewhere on encrypted PDFs. Okay. Now, I want to go back to you, Bridget, because we were talking last week about how Facebook had suspended um, thousands of apps from its service for, um, I, I guess it's on the back of their uh, response to the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And it seems that it and other social media outlets need to remain vigilant because this, uh, something new has come along now called disinformation as a service, which is apparently up for sale on the dark web. Yeah, so I suppose while we understandably primarily associate disinformation with, you know, nation states and political campaigns after the events of recent years, corporate disinformation, which is basically the spreading of false information about companies or even potentially about individuals, is something that exists. And according to Recorded Future, you can now easily purchase such a service on dark web dark web forums. So you can basically pay a threat actor to destroy the reputation of a company online or conversely pay them to enhance your company's reputation by spreading false information. So to sort of check out how all this works, um, record a future set up a fake company and they then pay two separate disinformation campaign hawkers who they said they found on a Russian language um, forum to basically spread disinformation about the company. They employed one of them to basically try and destroy destroy the fake company's reputation and then the other to basically create a positive public perception of the group in the Western media specifically as well. They were targeting, you know, English speaking Western social media and media outlets. And over the course of a couple of months, um, the disinformation as a service providers basically did multiple things. They created multiple social media accounts Uh, to make it look like the information they were spreading was coming from real people. They accumulated followers. And in some cases, they also used a technique we have discussed before about using kind of aged, like established social media accounts that can then add another level of authenticity to the information that's being shared. They also wrote articles, which they then shared using these social media accounts. And one of these articles, um, one of the ones that was tasked tasked with them creating a positive perception of the company was actually picked up and was published by a legitimate publication that has been in operation reportedly for more than 100 years. Now, notable in this campaign really was kind of the professionalism of the people who were carrying out these, these disinformation campaigns. It was very much handled as a business transaction. You know, they were happy to outline their processes, to provide samples of previous work they had done, and also to take feedback from their clients. So um, it was a very professionally run operation. And the scope of what they can do is basically highly customizable for the customer. And so the cost of their services can range from, you know, a few hundred dollars up to potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. But certainly, you know, some of the services they offer would be affordable to a wide range of people or certainly to corporations. I think Recorded Future said in their the kind of test campaign that they undertook was total cost was around six or seven thousand dollars. 
So certainly that would be in within reach for a lot of companies. And it was interesting too was the they provided a price list, the disinformation hawkers, I suppose. Um, and it included prices for getting articles published in extremely well-known, reputable publications as well. Now, those prices were very high. And obviously, whether or not those campaigns have ever been successful at duping a publication like that, we don't know. But certainly, it's a very interesting development in the whole disinformation space. And I suppose it really does underline the fact that there's very little on the internet nowadays that you can take at face value. And the reputations of politicians and companies and even individuals can easily be manipulated by these disinformation campaigns. Yeah, and speaking of manipulation and indeed face value, Candid, there was news this week that Google um, have created thousands of deep fake videos and then released them on the internet. What was the purpose of all of this? Yeah, the project is an effort to help build systems that can actually identify and detect deep fake images and videos. So these deep fake videos are videos where usually the face of a person has been replaced or swapped with another person's. So this could be used to put celebrities into embarrassing situations or, of course, alter evidence and steer up some public opinions on social media, just like with the uh, disinformation campaigns that we just talked about. So Google supports a project called Face Forensic Benchmark, among other projects, of course. And as with many research projects, a large test set of classified data is definitely needed to play with new ideas and test algorithms for detections and blocking. So this is probably the reason why Google hired 28 actors and created various videos with um, all of those actors. And the actors, of course, agreed that um, Google can do some shenanigans and create videos and modify them afterwards in order to create the fake versions. So Google used public available tools such as deepfakes, face-to-face, face swap, or neural textures to generate the fake videos where the face has been swapped with a different actor. And some of those examples are actually really well made. Um, so you can't really spot the difference and it's difficult to identify um, if they are a forgery or not, at least for me it was. And all of them are now available for researchers so they can develop their own detection methods and hopefully improve the detection rate after all. I guess the whole deepfake field is is a quite quickly evolving field, um, and it's also a bit scary, right? What uh, AI and machine learning can do with enough time and enough good data sets. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there was a time when video or audio was seen as kind of irrefutable evidence that something had happened or somebody had said something, but the way technology has come on now, uh, we're rapidly approaching a point, or at least seem to be rapidly approaching a point where you may not be able to believe what you see and hear. And it kind of works both ways even because you you might find yourself wondering about the authenticity of a video, but also it's conceivable that people can use the existence of deepfakes to then deny the authenticity of real footage, claiming that it's a deepfake itself. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, we, we've seen examples already in the past, right? Like with the business email compromise uh, that we also talked about in the podcast, where the attackers are generating kind of fake voice patterns and then using those patterns to call up uh, or at least send a message to the voice box and say, hey, this is your CEO, please issue this transaction right away. And I mean, those are quite convincing um, conversations now, or at least messages. So as you say, it, it can help the attackers, but of course it can also help the defenders. 
Yeah, and I suppose the problem with these existence of these deep fake videos is like if one of these deep fake videos goes viral and is taken at face value by people, if it's then disproven, that kind of doesn't erase the potential damage that could be done by it because people are going to believe what they want to believe, you know. So if people see these videos and they kind of reflect their worldview, then they might just believe them anyway, even if they are subsequently proven to be fake. So it's definitely a space to watch, I think, yeah, at the minute because the sophistication of them is is pretty outstanding for some of them. It's really difficult to tell. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen a few, especially this year. Um, there was one floating about of um, Mark Zuckerberg. But um, and it's 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 definitely quite convincing, you know. But as you say, often the debunking of a hoax or whatever isn't remembered as much as the hoax itself, because people often really do want to believe that it's true. Yeah, and it's hard to spread the, the kind of debunking as well, because you might have shared the original kind of tweet or message, but you're probably not going to share that you have fallen for it in the first place. So it, it's difficult to reach those people. And this can definitely change the perception as, I mean, people, as you said, um, kind of start to believe what they see on the internet and take it for face value. And this can change some elections, can change some opinions that can lead to God knows what. Now, I, I guess the key question for me is, and you're probably the best person to maybe give an opinion on this candidate, is can the technology for detecting deepfakes keep ahead of the technology for creating them? It's a difficult question. I mean, at the moment, you can still see um, in many cases, uh, let's say the skin is a bit um, smoother, uh, so to speak. So that's one giveaway. Uh, and the mimics might not uh, really match to, but it's getting more and more difficult. Um, so I, I'd say, yes, I see chances that we can stay ahead uh, with the detection phase. But it's probably going to need technology and, again, here, machine learning or artificial intelligence to do that for us as by naked eye. We probably won't be able to tell it in the future. Hmm. And I suppose it's probably no surprise that Google is trying to take a lead on this, considering it owns YouTube, which is like the number one video hosting platform. And a lot of computational power as well, because a lot of those um, highly kind of sophisticated deepfake videos do still need a lot of uh, computing powers to generate. So that helps as well. Okay. All right. Um, that's about all we have time for this week. Uh, if you've been enjoying our podcast, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out on all the action in the future. You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again discussing what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.